Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from Genesis how Noah, his wife, his sons, and their wives all came into the ark while the world lingered like Lot in Sodom. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org. Father, thank you so much for being here present with us, Lord, as we gather together in your name. We open the Word of God this morning, and we open our hearts to you, Lord. So we pray, teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 7, verse 7, please follow along. And Noah went in and his sons and his wife and his son's wife with him into the ark because of the waters of the flood, of clean beasts and of beasts that are not clean, and of fowls and of everything that creepeth upon the earth. There went in two and two unto Noah into the ark, the male and the female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day, were all the fountains of the deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were open. And the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. In the selfsame day entered Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons, with them into the ark. They and every beast after his kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, every fowl after his kind, every bird of every sort. And they went in unto Noah into the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. And they went in, went in male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. And the flood was of forty days upon the earth, and the waters increased and bare up the ark, and it was lift up above the earth. And the waters prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark went upon the face of the waters." And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered, and all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both the fowl and of cattle and of beasts and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life of all that was dry land died. Every living sort was destroyed that was upon the face of the ground, both male, man, and cattle and creeping things and the fowls of the heaven. And they were destroyed from the earth. Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed upon the earth 150 days. And chapter 8, And God remembered Noah and every living thing, and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters assuaged. The fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped, and the rain from the heaven was restrained. And the waters returned from off the earth continually after the, and after the end of the 150 days the waters were abated. The ark rested in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month upon the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the 10th month. And the 10th month, uh, the first day of the month, were the tops of the mountains seen. came to pass after 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. And he sent forth a raven which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up off the earth. And he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot. And she returned unto him into the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. Then he put forth his hand and took her and pulled her unto him unto the ark. And he stayed yet other seven days. And again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came to him in the evening. And lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off, so no one knew that the waters were abated from off the earth. And he stayed yet other seven days and sent forth the dove, which returned not again unto him any more. All right, so here we come. We're in verse 7 here. 
back in chapter 7. And this is the time. The time has finally arrived. Noah has been preparing this for this day for 120 years, and now it's come. And he walks into the ark. He goes into the ark. And as he goes up into the door of the ark, in essence, he's saying goodbye to the world. He's not even looking back. In essence, he's saying, you can take the world. Just give me Jesus. And he's proved by his going into the ark that he was not attached to the world. Noah had done everything he could up until this point to get the world to follow him into the ark, to get the world saved. He did everything. But they made their decision. He made his decision. And without even turning back, he just walks up that ramp, we can imagine, into the door of the ark and says goodbye. And we saw last week how when God said to Noah, come thou into the ark, that God was in the ark and he was inviting Noah to come join him in the ark. Doesn't that make you think of death as a believer? That that death looks very, very scary, looks scary to a believer. But really, it's like Noah going into the ark, walking into the ark there, where where Noah is saying goodbye to the world and hello to the Savior. And that's what death is. That's what what this is a picture of. It's what Stephen, when he died in in Acts 7, 55-56, it says there, but he being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly unto heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, and Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. So thank God he gave us that eyewitness account, because then we know. And so, in essence, what Noah can say as he's going into the ark, he can say, I see the door of the ark opened, and I see the, I see the Savior standing inside to welcome me. It's a wonderful picture. Now, in verse 7, there is a sense... As we've read these chapters here, there is a sense that Noah is alone. We know Noah's not alone. There is Noah's wife and his sons and his son's wives. By the way, they never give the name of the son's wives. I don't know. I feel kind of bad for them, you know, because everybody else has got a name, but they're just the wives of the sons. Oh, what can you do? All right. So anyway, uh, but Noah is in a, in a very sense, when you read these things, it says Noah built the ark. Now, we don't really think that Noah built this ark single-handedly. He had help, but it talks about it that way. Noah did this. Noah did that. And so this picture of Noah building the ark alone, so to speak, that we have here is purposeful when it's given that way because it emphasizes Noah doing these things sort of alone. And that's a very interesting picture because in Leviticus 16, there's a description of the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest goes, and what's remarkable about the description of the high priest on the Day of Atonement is how he is described in Leviticus 16, 17, where it says, and there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out and have made atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. So this aloneness, this doing this work aloneness is emphasized. And Noah working alone on the ark is emphasized 
as it brings to light the aloneness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what it speaks of and what Peter's emphasizing about the Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Peter 2.24 is his aloneness in the work when it says, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. We get this impression as we read about Noah working seemingly alone on this. Then we read in verse 7 that not only Noah, but it was his wife and his son's wives and sons that went in. But when we think how that's written there in verse 7 is very, very interesting because what it emphasizes to us is that each one of them, because they're stated like that, each one of them, in addition to Noah, had to make their own decision. Each one had to make their own decision. And we can imagine Noah saying to his wife, saying to his sons, saying to his sons' wives, what Paul said to Timothy. When Paul told Timothy, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3.10, thou hast fully known my doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, my long-suffering, my charity, my patience. See, that's what Paul said to Timothy. And before, in verse 7, as the time was nearing for them to enter into the ark, we can imagine one of those family scenes in which they're all together there, and Noah, his sons, his wife's sons, his wife, are all there. And we can imagine Noah addressing his wife and addressing his sons and his sons' wives and saying, the time is coming to enter into the ark. Now, each one of you have fully known my doctrine, what I believe, my manner of life, my purpose, the goal of my life, my faith, who I believe into, my long-suffering, my love, my charity, my patience. And the decision now to enter the ark is individually yours, no one else's. And then we can imagine Noah going one by one to the group, and he turns to his wife, and he turns to Shem, and he turns to Ham, and he turns to Japheth, and he turns to each one of their wives. And as he does, he said, how about you? How about you? What is your decision? Are you going to enter the ark? And each one had to say yes. Each one had to say yes. And that was momentous. And so to memorialize the importance of each one's decision here, the members of Noah's household that each made their own decision are called out in verse 7 as they enter into the ark. They all went in for one reason, and that reason was they were not rebellious. They were not rebellious. And there are two words that also tell us why his family went into the ark. And those are the words in verse 7. They went in with him. They went in with Noah. See, that goes back to Noah saying, you know my doctrine. You know my manner of life. You know my purpose. You know my love. You know my long-suffering and patience. And in essence, that when they said, he said, yes, we have fully known, your doctrine, your manner of life, your purpose, your faith, etc. And as a matter of fact, it is your doctrine, your manner of life, purpose, and so forth, that has led us individually to make this decision. Noah, you have led us by your life. 
You have led us by your life example. That's why Noah is an example to us of a godly father. He's an example to us of a godly mentor of others because those under him willingly made their decision to go with him. Did they understand all the details? No more than Noah understood all the details of what was going to happen. But Noah trusted God. Noah led them to trust God. They trusted Noah. And that's why they went into the ark. So Noah, when we consider this about Noah and his family and the sterling example that we have here, we can't help but see the importance of what happened when we look at the stark contrast of Lot and his family. Quite the opposite happened with Lot and his family. Because what we read about in Genesis 19.14 is when Lot was called to say goodbye to Sodom and his family was called by him to say goodbye to Sodom and go follow God, just like Noah entering the ark. It says in Genesis 19.14, Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-laws. Lot had, had he only had daughters. It was part of his problem, but anyway, he, he had daughters. And so he had sons-in-law and he speaks to them it says which married his daughters and he says up get you out of this place for the lord will destroy this city then it says this but he seemed as one that mocked unto his son-in-laws in other words they said you can't be serious they they looked at him and they said lot we're not going Maybe they said something that we fully have known, your doctrine, your manner of life, Lot, and um, we're not going. And so it says in Genesis 19, 15 through 16, that when the morning arose, about Lot, that the angels hastened Lot. They had to push Lot. There's nothing written in this account about angels having to push Noah to get onto the ark, but there is about them having to push Lot. And they said to him, they saying, arise, Take thy wife and thy two daughters which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of this city. So in other words, what the angels were saying to him was that if you let the attachment to those who want to stay cause you to hold back and linger back, you'll be destroyed. And that's what they're saying. And then it says in verse 16 of Genesis 19, and while he lingered, in other words, Lot wasn't sure. Lot said there, said, well, wait a minute, let me, I've got some second thoughts about this. I got a little bit of hesitation. Let me think about that. That's lingering. And so while Lot lingered, the men who were the angels laid hold upon his hand and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful. So they pulled him out. They pushed him out and they pulled him out of uh, Sodom. And it says, and they brought him forth and set him without the city. Tom, today you mentioned at the end of our study today how Lot lingered. What is lingering for the believer today? Well, lingering for the believer is a big problem. And it's described for us in James 1.8 where it says, A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Now, why is he unstable? Because he's double-minded, because he's not sure, because he's, he's straddling the fence, because he knows the things that are of God. He knows what the Bible teaches, but he sees something which, is, which, is, which God is not in agreement with, and he's kind of a tr- 
attracted to that, and this gives him a terrible state of being double-minded, and it results in him being unstable in all of his ways. In other words, the problem of lingering is to not be what is described in Romans 4, 20 through 21. It says very interesting two words in Romans 4, 21, where it speaks about Abraham and it says that he was fully persuaded. That's the opposite of being double-minded is to be fully persuaded. And what was Abraham fully persuaded in? He was fully persuaded that God was able to perform his promises. That's how it goes. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving God glory to God, and being fully persuaded what he had promised he was able to perform. So the problem of lingering, and what is lingering for the believer, it's to be unstable, and it's not to be fully persuaded that God is able to perform all the promises. So what is it that causes the believer to linger? Right. Well, what causes the believer to linger is what the Bible describes as being choked. And it's really the word being choked. It says in Matthew 13, 22, about this this category of person, this third category ground, which is the ground which is the ground in which the seed fell, where there were thorns in the ground. And so what it says in Matthew thirteen twenty two is it says, he also that receives seed, and the seed is the word of God, he also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becometh unfruitful. So you see, that's not a problem for this believer to hear the word. This believer does hear the word. This believer goes to church. This believer listens to Bible studies on the radio, or he goes to Bible studies, or he reads the Bible for himself, or he's, he, 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 whatever. He hears the word. He is familiar with the word. This is not a problem of him not knowing the word. He can recite the word. He can He's memorized Bible verses. He can tell you what the books of the Bible are about. he's He's like a scholar in the Word of God. He hears the Word. But there is a problem that the Word is choked. In other words, the Word is a seed, and the seed is supposed to produce fruit. It's supposed to germinate. It's supposed to, there's supposed to be growth that comes out, but this seed doesn't grow. This seed doesn't produce fruit because there is a competition in the ground there between the seed and the thorns, and the thorns are winning. And as the thorns are winning, they're choking the seed. They're choking the word. So the word is not able to produce a change in the believer's life. The word is not able to make the believer different because the word is being choked. And so that's the great problem here of hearing the word and the word being choked. And there are two reasons that are given in this verse as to why there is this horrible condition of the word being choked within this believer. And the first problem is called the care of this world. This person is consumed with worry. This person is being eaten up by 
but he can't buy enough insurances to cover all the things that he's worried about. And when he wakes up in the morning and thinks of something else that he didn't insure for, and, he's, and he worries about that, then he goes and worries and finds if he got insurance and if he's got enough insurance and if all the, the clauses in the insurance are, will, will, will still protect him. See, then, anyway, it's not just with insurance. It's also just to care. What about my future? What's going to happen to me? And how about how secure is my job? And do I have enough put away for retirement? And is my house going to be in good shape? And, and all these cares of this world. And sometimes they're, they're things which are just silly that a person worries about because worry is a vortex. Once it begins to suck you down, then one worry after another is like having a, 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 a sack put over your head and you can't see like the Lord Jesus Christ was when he was buffeted. They were hitting him. And we feel that way when we are caught in this trap of the care of this world. Now, the care of this world, why do we get sucked in to having so much worry? It's because we don't really believe that God is great enough, that God is mighty enough to take care of us. See, that's the key. Do we really believe that God is great enough and God is mighty enough to take care of us? Then the care of this world won't choke the word, but this is what happens. So when the cares, so cares are something that you worry about. So in other words, the care of this world is something that, that a person runs away from. He's constantly running away. Ways, worried about this, running away from that, running away from this, the cares of this world. But then it says the other on the other problem, which causes the lingering in the believer, is the deceitfulness of riches. The deceitfulness of riches. In other words, it's a phantom. It's a it's a it's a it's a it's a mist. It's a cloud, and it looks to be offer so much. And so a person goes and runs and runs and tries to get it. But when he gets there, it just seems to vanish away. The deceitfulness of riches. In other words, oh, if I could just win the lottery. Oh, if I just had so much money that I didn't have to worry about money. And when a person does get that, they're still not happy. Why? Because the richest promised something they could not deliver. What could they not deliver? Peace, security, love, a security for the future. Riches don't deliver those things. They just say that they do. They deceive that they do. So that's why they're deceitfulness of riches. So in other words, that is something that the believer who is lingering runs to, always runs to the riches. He runs from the cares. He runs to the riches. He's running. And as he's running, the word that he's heard is being choked choked. So that's what it means for, for, the, for the, the causes for the believer to linger. And so a believer can get caught up lingering in the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. But what prevents the believer from lingering? What can stop that or help with that. Yeah, and God has great instructions for us to help us along the way. He says that the believer to be kept from lingering, he gives us great instruction in James 4.8. He says, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. In other words, just say, Lord, I am in a terrible trap. I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Help me, Lord, because I'm drawing close to you, Lord Jesus. And then you'll find that he draws close to us. And then it says, cleanse Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify ye hearts, ye double-minded. In other words, God says, turn from that sin. Turn from what you know to be wrong. And you say, Lord, I can't. But you see, that's where he says, draw nigh to God, he will draw nigh to you. You you turn, you say, I don't have the strength. You turn, God gives you the strength. He says, because all he needs is a willing heart, a willing heart that will prove it's willing by taking the first step. And God will help with the second step. So the draw nigh to God, he will draw, that's the promise. He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Put it all away. 
And then God says in the great first commandment in Deuteronomy 6.4, part of the Shema, after it's here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Then he says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. In other words, don't make room for anything else, but your supreme love is the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou shalt love Jehovah Jehovah Jesus, the Lord, the Lord thy God, your God, with all your heart. In other words, the single focusedness, focusedness of our affection, the single focusedness of our interest in our will, in our soul, the single focusedness of what we do with our strength, with all of our might, all to the Lord. Life becomes so simple. Life becomes so peaceful. Life becomes so stable when we love the Lord our God with all all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our might. And we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ when we do that. And then he says in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, he says, love not the world, neither things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Then he goes on and describes to us what this means. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not of the Father, but it's of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. And he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. It's all about lust. It's, it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It's lust. You know, they have watched this television program in it called House Hunters International or House Hunters. Really, when you look at it, these people are saying, oh, this is what I want. And everybody watching it says, yeah, that's what I want. Really, it's Lust Hunters. It's Lust Hunters International. And that's really a description of what the problem of the world is. And God says, turn all the way from it. Why? Because the world passeth away and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Thank you for joining us today. Now, Noah was a preacher of righteousness who was moved with fear and compassion while God was giving mankind space to repent. Now, will you be like Noah and carry out the message of hope and gladness to a lost and dying world, especially the Jewish people that are around you? Well, we've got an opportunity for you to receive a free gospel gift to give to a Jewish person. It's Tom Cantor's testimony DVD and his life story in a booklet form. We'll give that away free to you and to any lost Jewish person that you know. Now, all you have to do, again, is call us at 1-800-247-3051. 1-800-247-3051. Thanks for listening.